Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm not going to be in the car with them going home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Jan said when we left Memphis, or in fact, when our kids started moving out of the house, she said, oh, kids, please don't move away. She said, I have to live with your daddy, and he won't have anybody to tease but me. <laughs> so I, I punched her when, when uh, Joe said what he said, and, and see, you're not the only one. So, <laughs> so. Oh, we're making some progress. Isaiah 17 uh, is where we are. We're in the uh, oracles against the foreign nations. Uh, the uh, segment of Isaiah is aimed at telling Israel, you really can't trust anything. I'm going to judge everything you either trusted or feared. And so we've, we've come from chapter 13 through to chapter 17. And let's just go back over these chapters, go back to chapter 13 for a minute. In chapter 13, there's a message against Babylon, 13 and 14. In 15, at the end of, of, of 14, he talks a, a, a message against Assyria and a message against Philistia. In chapter 15, we looked last week at Moab, and that took us through chapter 16 as well. Everything that Israel either feared or trusted, God is, is judging. Um, because they will not trust the Lord. Go back just a moment to chapter, uh, chapter 7, and let's get oriented at least this far into it. Uh, Hezekiah, I'm sorry, King uh, Ahaz is on the throne. Ahaz is Hezekiah's father. That's, that's really good news, brothers and sisters, because a wicked king can have a godly son. That, that's, that's great news. Unfortunately, Hezekiah had Ammon and Manasseh right, follow him, so not so good. But, but King Ahaz is on the throne. He's terrified because... Uh, Syria and Samaria are getting ready to attack and remove him from the throne. Uh, he's doing everything he can to get ready for that. God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah, to Ahaz, and uh, uh, verse 4, he is to say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the force of the anger of Ritzin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, because Aram, that's Damascus, Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it. Make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of, of Tabaal as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and uh, we're coming to Damascus very soon. The head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Ritzin. The, the word Ritzin means crushed. The king of Damascus is king crushed. Um, now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not, the NIV reads here, it, it preserves the pun that's being used in Hebrew. If you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. Um, verse 10, 
Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Lord, your God. Do you notice that? Why is it the Lord your God when he's an idolater? Because he's a member of the Davidic house. He is an heir of the Davidic covenant. Ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ahaz said what was very politically astute, but quite deceptive. I will not test the Lord. Um, Where did it go? I've lost it. Um, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Sounds really spiritual. But as Martin Luther said, when God has commanded to test, it is sin not to test. So, verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of whom? No longer your God. Ahaz has effectively renounced his place in the in the uh, Davidic house. Um, Try the patience of my God also. And that's where we get then the the Emmanuel prophecy. This is what's the background for this whole section in chapters 13 to 23. He's he's laying out, Ahaz trusts Assyria. He really trusts Assyria. But Assyria is going to be judged. Are you with me here? He's afraid, deathly afraid of, of Syria and Ephraim. If, if you will look at chapter 17 now, um, the opening line is where the subject of the judgment is usually named. But we've got a couple of these, para, of, of these um, oracles where a dual subject is addressed. So looking there at verse 1, the oracle concerning Damascus. That's Syria, Aram in Isaiah 7. Are you with me here? But look down at verse 3. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. Ahaz is terrified of Damascus and of Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Are you with me here? He's convinced the only hope he has is to get Assyria to intervene on his behalf. But God has already declared the judgment of Assyria which will come in the days of Hezekiah. We'll see it in chapters 36 and 37. Um, but now he declares the judgment of Damascus and Syria. I'm sorry, D- Damascus and Ephraim. Yeah. Um, Ephraim is part of old Israel. Yeah. And Damascus was never part of old right. Israel. Right. So has Damascus now They're alliance. They're in an alliance against King Ahaz. That, that was what we read in chapter 7. Uh, Aram and Ritzin, that's Damascus. Um, we'll have a, a, a thing or two to say about Damascus before we're done. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, their, their goal is to get Ahaz off the throne. He's pro-Assyrian. They want somebody who will, who will ally with them against Assyria. And so they're going to destroy the Davidic house. As if that could happen. Are you with me here? Even for an unbelieving man on the throne, God has, has declared that these two enemies he's so afraid of are going to be destroyed. So, verse, uh, chapter 17, let's, uh, so we've done kind of the overview. We've been through that material. We've been through Moab. That's, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit behind here. Um, 
Now we're coming to Damascus and Samaria. Uh, we're using different terms here. Uh, Northern Israel, uh, Ephraim, and Samaria all refer to the same entity. The ten tribes that withdrew from the Davidic house, remember this? After Solomon's reign. So uh, read the Bible, it sheds enormous light on the commentaries. So, uh, um, And then we'll turn at the end of chapter 17 to... Uh, uproarious people. Um, oh, I, th- I had a map. Well, the map is gone. Damascus is a profoundly strategic city in the ancient Near East. Well, that was Moab. Yeah. Um, I thought I, I put a map in there. I don't know what happened to it. Uh, the um, Damascus was an extremely uh, strategic city. The the centers of power in the period were in the 8th century B.C., so late 8th century, sometime around 725, 728, someplace some in that period. Um, if the, 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 the two power centers in that period are in Mesopotamia, what is today Iraq, uh, primarily Assyria, way in the north of Iraq, where the Kurds now are, and then Egypt, and if you wanted to travel from Mesopotamia to Egypt, you had to go through Damascus. It had to. There wasn't any other road that would take you there. So Damascus had lots and lots of, of trade going through it, and that meant lots of taxes being paid. Does this make sense to you? It was always a powerful city. There were only two routes that led out of Damascus. One led south toward uh, Israel, and the other led east, I'm sorry, west, toward Tyre. West is that way for me, it's that way for you. Uh, West toward Tyre, and then south toward Egypt. But all trade, all travel between Egypt and the the Middle East had to go through Damascus. So it's a very powerful city. Uh, It depended on which route you took. Once you got to north of the uh, Sea of Galilee, the route split. Uh, there, were, there were two routes. One went immediately south from Damascus along uh, the east shore of the, uh, of the Jordan River. It's called the King's Highway. And then one branched off and went over to the coast. That one would have gone through the valley. That went down to the coast, and then you traveled down to Egypt. That was called the, the Way of the Sea. So it depended on which route you took. But Damascus controlled three major routes leading to Egypt. Does this make sense to you? Very powerful city, therefore, and always a thorn in Israel's side. So chapter 17, verse 1, and let's, let's get into our material. 1 to 5 is a prophetic threat uh, to Aram and Israel. So the oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. It will become a fallen ruin. I read someplace recently. I didn't keep track of the source. I'm, I'm, with with my Logos software, if you're and if you're intending to be a really serious Bible student, Logos Bible software is an amazing tool. I just it's incredible. Um, you need training if you get it. It's not cheap, so it's a significant investment. It would be an, it would be. It, <laughs> I didn't drool. That's good. Uh, uh, 
but because of the insignificant investment, you need training, and there are ways to get training on Logos. But uh, I'm, I'm, there are reading plans, so you can choose modules that you have and read them, set out schedules. I want to finish it in this amount of time. I'm reading 12 books now uh, every day and keeping up with the schedule. I'm, I'm reading more than I've ever read in my life. It's just, it, oh, it's, it really isn't that hard. But, um, well, no, but think about reading something, reading something that's talking about things you've studied for 20 and 30 years. It's not that hard. Um, so, but, but in that reading, I read about Damascus. There was a period when it was completely depopulated. There was simply nothing there. And that's remarkable because it controlled that crossroads. Does that make sense? So uh, eventually it was rebuilt. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. I forget how long it's been inhabited, something like 7,000 years or so. Incredibly old city. But it's going to be depopulated, God says. Verse 2, the cities of Aror are taken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. Damascus virtually disappears from the, from the passage until uh, uh, throughout the rest of this section. Um, the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his skin, of his flesh, will become lean. It will even be like a, a reaper gathering standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. And it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim, a very fertile place in Israel. <laughs> They're, they're going to go through and just strip the region. Are you with me? All right. What does Israel have to trust in or fear from Damascus? Or, for that matter, for the northern kingdom? Verses 6 to 8, a remnant will forsake idolatry. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Uh, do you know how they harvest olives? Today, they have a machine. It has a collar that wraps around the, the um, trunk of the tree and just shakes it violently. They lay out canvas uh, tarps down on the ground, and then they shake the tree, and everything falls. And they, that's how they, they used to get, a, get there and shake it by hand. I don't know how that would ever work, but um, this, this, is, this is what he's talking about. Um, it will be like one gleaning, I'm sorry, verse uh, 6. Yet the gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives upon the topmost bough. Four or five on the branches of the fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. That word declares, you have something like that in your text? That word is, is a word that's an odd word. It, it occurs hundreds of times in the Bible, especially in the prophets. Uh, it's an odd word. I've, I've puzzled over it for years. The best I can do to make it out is it's almost like God saying, this is my signature. <laughs> I'm signing this. Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, verse 7, in that day, man will have regard for his maker. And his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of men's hands, 
nor will he look uh, at to that which his fingers have made, even the Asherim and the incense stands. Uh, later, Isaiah is going to have some marvelous satire against idolatry. Uh, one, just one taste of it. He's, he's talking about satirizing the, the idols. And he says uh, he, the, the maker uh, uh, carves it, overlays it with gold, and nails it down so that it won't fall. You know, because, you know, think about it. You're praying to your God for deliverance from adversity, and your God, your God falls over because he can't stand up. <laughs> Are you with me here? It's, it's high humor, and nobody, when I teach prophets at the seminary, nobody ever laughs in that passage. They ought to. God, God is laughing at our folly. And, and so he's, they're, 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 there's coming a time when judgment will come, and everybody will turn to the Lord finally. Verses 9 through 11, the rest will be plagued for their impiety. So verse 9, in that day their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel, and the land will be desolate. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the nation of Judah. But if we put this in context, he's addressing Ahaz. You have abandoned the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your strength. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips to a strange God. Yeah. Jim, is this something that has already taken place or in the future? Uh, yes. <laughs> That's both. Probably both. This, these, the warning is coming to Judah who is trusting everything but the Lord. The judgment is future. Uh, verse 11, then, is it, do we not? Yes. In, in the day that you plant it, by the way, uh, since much of ancient religion, since of much of, of idolatrous religion smacks heavily of animism and uh, nature worship, then uh, you want nice plants around your, and trees especially, trees around your altars. So they always, wherever they put, um, uh, wherever they put places of worship, there were trees there. Are you, are you with me here? So um, uh, that was a sign in the Middle East. Um, not, a, not a terribly wet portion of the world. Uh, so where there are trees, that's a sign of blessing. Does that make sense? And so they, are, they, they assumed that if there are trees, then this is a place that you ought to worship the God who brings the rain. Uh, in that day you will plant, uh, you plant it, carefully fence it in. In the morning you will bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of, stillness, of sickness and incurable pain. You do everything you can. You massage your gods and you make them feel real good and you give them... You give them the fat of your sacrifices. The fat is often burned to the gods in worship sacrifices. So you give them the fat of your go- of your gods and of your sacrifices and make them feel real good. And they'll they'll then turn and be nice to you. Only one problem: um, <laughs> they're under the control of another god. And you will say, "But there aren't any other gods." And I, and I 
I will say, you need to read 1 Corinthians. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for just a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, the people are struggling in Corinth over the problem, what is an appropriate relationship for Christians with pagans in the city of Corinth, and especially with banquets. Uh, Roman society in, in Corinth was a Roman city. All of the um, all of the monumental inscriptions in Corinth from the first century are in Latin. It was a Roman city. It was in Greece, but it was a Roman city. Does that make sense to you? It had Roman government. It had Roman language. It had Roman architecture. Uh, so, and it was a Roman colony, which meant that they were free from taxes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, if only America were free from Texas, um, but uh, we are not. Uh, so, uh, sorry, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Ten, chapter ten, First Corinthians ten. Um, so, so the banquets are an inherent part of, of of Roman culture, but all life in Roman culture was religious. You couldn't conceive of a secular and a, and a sacred sphere. Everything was, was sacred. There was no secular sphere. To be a Roman was to, was to serve the gods of the empire. And the, the empire was held together by its religion. So if you were in a, in a trade guild, you had banquets with the trade guild, and they sacrificed to the gods. Are you with me here? So chapters 8, 9, and 10 in 1 Corinthians are about what do we do about eating meat sacrificed to idols? One part of that discussion is here in chapter 10, um, uh, verse, uh, let me see, which verse? I'm in Romans, that's why I'm having trouble. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's turn to Romans. Yeah. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's, it's a little later than that, what I'm after. Um, um Uh, verse 19, as a matter of fact. What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to be fellowshipping with demons. Folks, people followed Babylonian religion from before the foundation of the city of Babylon. Uh, 3500 BC is about the earliest writing we can decipher. And from 3500 BC, the same gods are worshipped in that region until after the time of Christ. And people made prayers and never got answers. Satan works too, and that's the point. We have, we have become so monotheistic that we've forgotten that Satan can answer prayer too. Are you with me? And his demons. And those are the things that the, that the Gentiles call gods. So, back to chapter 17 of Isaiah. Uh, they think, if I can get enough gods on my side, then we'll really be strong. And if I ally with another nation, by the way... Always in that culture, an alliance with a foreign nation meant an alliance with their gods. It meant idolatry. 
Thus, Israel is warned against alliances with foreign nations. This is not George Washington. Okay? George Washington's warning against entangling alliances. That's not what Washington was talking about. We're talking about something entirely different. It is as if I make an alliance with a Buddhist and immediately start worshiping Buddha too. Are you with me here? So the issue, this is a different issue from what our politics are. General Douglas MacArthur said that the Japanese would have expected us, if they had beaten us, to worship the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But because we beat them, they wanted to know who our God was. Yeah. And he was desperate for Bibles and missionaries. Yeah. He got the Bibles, but, but no missionaries. So the, the, the issue is very basic, folks. Israel, Judah, re- both of them really believe we just need more gods. It's good to have Yahweh. That's good. Don't want to give up on him. Sometime read Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, it's called the Temple Sermon. Jeremiah 7, the people come and worship the Lord and they bow down before him and they pray and they bring sacrifices. Then they go off and, and embezzle and they cheat. But they also go to the other, to the other uh, temples and worship those gods too. Yeah. Your commentary on how things are changing here, uh, where we have our good news club, you know, Gene and I and the school there, it used to be we were, we were made fun of in school for believing in God. In that school, children make fun of people for believing in only one God. Because hmm. there are so many oh, yes, right. Yeah. And they make fun of yeah. who don't believe yeah. in God. So, back to chapter 17, verse 12, then. Um, this, the, the uproar of peoples. It's not utterly clear what's going on here. Um, he, he, these, these peoples are rumbling like my, mighty seas. Jen and I were at Kanyakumari in India a number of years ago. And uh, Kanyakumari is the southern tip of India, um, the, uh, if, you, if you stand facing the sea, you're facing the um, Indian Ocean. On your right is the, is the Arabian Gulf, and on your left is the Bay of Bengal. And th- the, the waters of three oceans come together there, and it can be fierce. Remember those waves? They were just uh, they were powerful. Uh, and because of that, the Hindus go there because they think, surely the waters of three oceans will wash away the defilement of our sins will help us deal with our karma. And, and, but, but some of you have stood at the sea when it's stormy, when, it's, when it's, uh, the, the sea is really rough. Yes? can be terrifying. Um, so, so this is what we're talking about in these verses. Alas, the uproar of many peoples, they're roaring, they're raging, who roar like the roaring of the seas and the, tumbling of, uh, and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like a rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Judah, why are you afraid of Damascus? Judah, why are you afraid of Samaria? And, he, and, and they will be chased like chaff in the mountain. What's chaff? Do you know? Yeah, you, you, you thresh the wheat and, and it separates the, the shell from the kernel. It's kind of like 
what you get in popcorn between your teeth, yes? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's really light. In Hebrew, anything that's light lacks any value. Uh, what, is, what is heavy is valuable. Uh, so the, the word for glory in Hebrew is a word derived from a verb that means to be heavy. And what a chaff, one of the words for chaff is cow. It's light. So you throw it up in the air and the wind blows it away. So um, uh, verse uh, 13, the nations rumble on like rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff. Rumbling of mighty waters. I got caught in an undertow in Los Angeles on the, on the beach once to the, by the mercy of God, my aunt, my cousin was there who was a lifeguard. <laughs> so she, she was a PE teacher and a lifeguard and she came in and got me out of the, of the undertow, but I could feel it. I was heading out. Are, are you with me here? Uh, powerful waves can be destructive. And if you get in their way bad enough, yes, it, it can drown you, can kill you. But for all their rumbling, they're nothing but chaff that's going to be blown away by the wind. Um, he will rebuke them, and they will, they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like uh, whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who, plun- who uh, plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. I don't know why, but for the last several days, a song has been on my mind, Onward Christian Soldiers. And um, my impression is I, I, I could remember most of it, but I couldn't remember all of it. So I got on the Internet and looked it up. My impression is that's probably a kind of a triumphalist Christian song. Um, one of the lines, though, Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. What path did the saints tread? Suffering, martyrdom, yes. What, what, if, if I were pastoring and if we were going to sing Onward Christian Soldiers, I would teach the song in a particular context. The odd thing for us, brothers and sisters, and for Israel, is... Um, that it's the way of weakness that is the way of strength. When I'm in trouble, I think, well, maybe God's forgotten me. But I'm, I'm finding more and more in Scripture, when I'm in trouble, it's God showing me his sufficiency. And my task is not to run from the trouble, it's to... In, do, you, do you know James 1.12? Move your heads. All right. Do you know there is a James 1.12? Okay. (laughs) Blessed are they who endure testing. For when they are tried, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who who fear him. Are you with me here? So what is the blessing for? Enduring Enduring hardship. Are you with me here? Yes, that's true. Yeah, but in a triumphalist reading of Onward Christian Soldiers, it's like, well, that's the banner, and we're all marching to victory, and we're, yeah, we're marching to victory. That's right. Through great hardship and suffering. 
Uh, it's it, folks, you don't have to trust God when things are easy. The only time you ever ever really have to trust God is when they're hard. And that's when we begin to doubt that maybe we're trusting the wrong thing or not. Surely we wouldn't say that. But we think, oh, what is God doing? Am I, have I done something wrong? Is Why won't he answer my prayers? He is. You just can't see it yet. Does this make any sense to you at all? This is what, in part, what Isaiah is trying to teach his people. Or God is trying to teach through Isaiah, his people as they are going through this time of hardship. Verse chapter 18 goes on and, and moves us on to um, uh, a uh, message against Cush. Or not actually against Cush. I have it wrong on the screen. I have, I have uh, this week decided it should be different. It's, it's a woe that's related to Cush. Uh, Cush is called on to, to uh, become the messengers of coming judgment. To Judah. Uh, so in uh, verses 1 to 6, um, uh, Alas, O land of whoring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters, go, swift messengers. Why do you send messengers? To, to prepare, give a message, yes? Well, the Cushites the, the are the people who are the messengers. The Cushites, who are at the end of creation as far as Israel is concerned, they live so far south, that's about, about as far south as you could even conceive going. Why would you go any further? Um, but the people way distant from Israel know what's going on. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose, whose land uh, the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains you will see it as soon as the trumpet is blown you will hear it for thus the Lord has told me I will look from my dwelling place quietly like dazzling heat in the sunshine like a cloud of dew in the heat of our of harvest for before the harvest as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape then he will cut off the sprigs and the, with pruning knives. Uh, he will remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain, for mountain birds of prey. All the produce, all the good that Judah looks for is going to be destroyed. And for the beasts of the earth and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them. And all the beasts uh, uh, of the earth will spend harvest time on them. So the, the messengers of Cush are sent to Judah to tell them judgment's coming. You've trusted the wrong thing. You see, folks, God wants us to trust him so completely that he can take us into anything and we will come out singing. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm, I'm just learning this stuff. Too late. In my life, am I learning this stuff? But I'm just learning it. God wants people who will go into hardship and know that whatever God is doing, it is good. It's not good like, 
what was that awful stuff they gave children back in the fifth? Castor oil. Well, codly, I never had that, but I can't even imagine that. But castor oil. Uh, and I remember, do you remember, those of you who lived in the 50s, uh, the medicine tasted so bad? Oh, it was horrible. My mother thought it would cure anything. That was what my mother said. It, it tastes bad because it's working. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, it's not good like castor oil is good for you. It's really good. I thought it was horrible. Hey, folks, I don't, I don't know whether I've told you that. I think I have. I won the lottery. I won a national lottery. 1969. <laughs> I was number 68 in the draft lottery. I got three years all-expense-paid all tour of three uh, posts in the United States Army and one in the Air Force. Boy, I got and all, man, clothes and food and housing. Amen? Wow, I won the lottery. And a baby. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought, this is the worst. Jan and I were engaged. We were planning to be married after graduation. That was in spring of 1970. And I, and I had a job at a really fine school teaching uh, with a good prospect for the future. They were going to help me get my master's degree. Tell it not in gas, tell it not in Ascalon at the University of Texas at Austin. The Lord saved me from a fate worse than death by getting me into the army during the Vietnam War. But, but uh, uh, I thought this was terrible. I was on KP duty at Fort uh, Leonard Wood, Missouri. We knew it affection, affectionately as, as Fort Lost in the Woods in the State of Misery. Um, but, but I was on KP one day, and they were playing on... I was, I was already feeling bad. Jen and I had been married nine days when I reported for the Army. I was feeling terrible. Here's away from my wife, and I'm here in this woman army post, and who knows where I'm going to be in a few weeks. And so I'm on KP, and that was just extra blessing. Um, somehow on KP, I always got back sink. That was washing pots and pans. I don't know why. I was just marked for that. Every time I got KP, I got back sink. But I was out doing something out in the in the dining area, and and over the over the loudspeakers was playing a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. I'm five hundred miles away from home and my wife. <laughs> I'm gonna go on a hunger strike and they'll let me out on a section fourteen or section eight, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't see what God was doing. Am I making sense to you? I, I had no idea what God was doing. Let me tell you what God did with that. After basic, I was sent to Fort Myer, Virginia, where I was trained in German. Eight months, five, five days a week, six hours a day. Um, nine months, nine months uh, honeymoon. Yeah, it really was a, a, an eight-month honeymoon because uh, there's so much back then in D.C. that you could do for free. It was great. Uh, then, uh, then we were sent to Fort Leonard Wood, for, to uh, Fort Hood, <clears throat> and at Fort Hood, I became a youth pastor for two years. Uh, came to Dallas Seminary. The tuition was ex exorbitant back in those days, thirty-five dollars an hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that was that was almost three times what I paid for college, and I we couldn't afford college. I didn't know how I was going to pay it. 
But do you know, brothers and sisters, the GI Bill paid for the entirety of my 120-hour master's degree and the first year of my doctorate. I still don't know how that... I, I keep waiting for a letter from the DOD. <laughs> you owe us money <laughs> with interest. <laughs> uh, but then I, I got into the doctoral program in which I had to be able to read German. And I had to be able to read French. I had majored in Latin. I had four years of, of Latin in high school and four years in college. And I said to my mother, what in the world am I doing majoring in Latin? What am I ever going to do with it but teach? She said, I hate well, She had two sermons that she preached all the time. And I hated them. But she preached them over and over. I can preach them in my sleep. Does God know what he's doing? Yes. <laughs> uh, the other one was a ram in the thicket. There's always a ram in the thicket. But, so one, got, one is God knows what he's doing. The other is there's a ram in the thicket. Uh, when I had to take the French exam, I started studying French, and I thought, this verb is awfully familiar. I got, I got one of those 500 French verbs uh, conjugated and started looking, especially at irregular verbs, and I thought, I don't need to learn French. I took the exam. I'd, I'd studied about a third of the grammar. I, I took the exam and passed it the first time. Does, out, of, out of that experience, three years in the Army, which I didn't want, uh, God brought so much. Are you with me here? Um, and over and over and over in our lives, we have seen this. Have we not? Then one of the things that, uh, I think it's Psalm uh, 48, says to Israel, go around Jerusalem, count its towers, tell it to the next generation. This is our God. Are you with me here? The idea in Psalm 48 is go learn the history of Jerusalem, then you can teach your people, you teach your children. What we, are, what we are learning, brothers and sisters, we must pass on to the next generation. What you have learned in hardship is much more deep and sweet than what you have learned in good times. Yes or no? Then, folks, that's what I think Isaiah is talking about here, folks. Israel isn't willing to go into hardship for the sake of God. They aren't willing to let things get desperate to see God work. They're not willing, and, and we in the church are not willing, to be weak so that we can see the strength of God. Um, it's in weakness that our strength lies. You know this. You know 2 Corinthians 12. Um, about this, I, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be removed from me. And he said, my strength yeah, yeah, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will all the more, and the, the Greek adverb there is interesting, I will all the more sweetly boast in my weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I, I don't want to be weak, I want to be strong. The church doesn't want to be weak, but its only strength is in its weakness. Are you with me here? Judah is not willing to cast all their hope on the Lord. And so they're making alliances. They're trying to fight alliances. They're trying to find help 
that everything that they're trusting in fails because God's going to judge it. Uh, when you find a big stick, God always has a bigger one. Um, so in 1 to 6, the carnage, uh, this is inaccurate. But finally, so let's finish out this uh, passage on Cush, verse 7. I'm sorry, yes, Cush. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. God's going to turn... This, this, this is astonishing. We're going to see it again in chapter 19. God's going to turn the enemies into servants of God. Then, brothers and sisters, um, instead of looking for what will make us strong, let's learn from Scripture what it means to be weak. Are you with me here? Let Do, do, do you remember James... Back in James again, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all, I, told, I tell my students this at, at test time. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into diverse testing. <laughs> knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith work of patience. But let patience have its complete work, that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. Are you with me here? What is he saying? Putting that with verse 12. That the normal state of a Christian is hardship. Because it's in hardship that I learn to trust God. Does this, does this make any sense? Um, and here is, here is a series. We're right in the middle of it. We'll go to chapter 23 in the next few weeks. But here we're in the middle of a series where God is coming back to Judah over and over and again and saying, look, you're trusting, fearing everything around you. There's only one thing to fear. There's only one thing to, to trust. That's me. So when things start getting hard, start looking up. Because when they get really impossible, and by, by, by the way, I've learned, they get impossible a long time before they get impossible. <laughs> I think it's impossible, and then it gets worse. Couldn't get worse. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but when it gets really impossible, God goes to work. He's already been at work. That's the, that's the stunning thing that I've learned over these years. He's already been at work, but it's in the hardship that he shows his greatness. And the, and the message to Judah in these passages is, why do you fear everything around you? Why do you trust? There's only one thing to trust. Only one thing to fear is the Lord God of all, of, of, of hosts. Let's pray and pray. Father... You know my heart. You know this isn't in my heart yet. It's in my head. I haven't learned this. You know that. And I can't say these things to these people and, and cheat them and, and dissemble before them that this is really my way of responding to you. But, Father, you know I'm seeing this in your word. I know you have said these things, so I say them in part because I need to start believing them, and in saying them in public, I may actually start believing them. 
uh, but give us all the same kind of sense of endurance that we really are soldiers, but we are soldiers who are marching to death because it's in death that we receive life. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.